Welcome to Off The Fence. I'm your host, James Fox, at Fox1038 on Twitter. I'm also here with Alex Maskell. What's up, everyone? He is at Alex Maskell on Twitter. Uh, we're all about what's been going on the past week in terms of political news in the UK and a bit of stuff from the US as well. So if you want to check us out online, we actually made a Twitter for the show just this week. We did. It's usually one of us uh, piloting it while deeply bored. Yeah, and if you want to connect with us on there, that is at Off The Fence Talk, so you can grab that on there. Yeah, do join us. We'll try and tweet on there as much sarcastic stuff as we can throughout the week. You know what we're like. We have a brand to uphold, and we maintain it across many (laughs) mediums. Anyway, what have we got coming up? We've got lots of things uh, to talk about. Of course, we will be talking about who is out in the White House, Uh, one particular person who we were very pleased to see leave, uh, but that's kind of one of the biggest stories I mean, you say please. I'm deeply saddened to see him go. Uh, I'm I'm very, very invested at this point in the White House, uh, probably making the world infinitely worse, but also being this hilarious cavalcade of constant fuck-ups. And so I'm very sad to see the departure of one Mr. Steve Bannon. We'll be talking about that later on. We've also got what David Davis is really like. Uh, someone is out at him. We'll be talking about that later on. Yeah. He is the Brexit secretary, the guy in charge of Brexit. Uh, at the moment on the UK's negotiating side of the table. We've also got a certain conservative paper adopting one Jeremy Corbyn for advertising purposes. We'll be talking about that and kind of two sides to it and how it's kind of a bit jarring, uh, a little bit weird. Uh, We'll also be talking about the showdown that is one of the brilliant minds of the scientific world of the 21st century versus one of the worst of the Tory party. One of the dumbest people in modern politics. Yeah, so we'll be talking about all that later on. So stay tuned for that. Plus, uh, we have something about the bongs of Big Ben. Yeah, we'll be talking about uh, Big Ben uh, and kind of the silliness around that happening today, the 21st of August. But quickly, before we go through that, let's run through some fast stories that we haven't got time to talk about too much, but we don't want to miss. We mentioned on last week's show, Sarah Champion, um, the comments that she had in The Sun about the... How Pakistani men are predisposed to rape? Yes, those ones. So particularly people from Pakistan, particularly men from Pakistan, are predisposed to being in rape gangs. So if you're a man from Pakistan, that's what you're predisposed to. And Uh, I mean, if you don't have one already, look it up in your local listing. See if you can get together with some people, you know, make... Uh, get a get a group together. So you know, meet uh, meet some new people, make some friends. She was fine. the shadow equalities minister and MP for Rotherham. She's now resigned as the shadow shadow equalities minister. Yeah, you don't get to be the shadow equalities minister if you think that certain races are predisposed to be sex criminals. Yeah. So there we go. That that's another thing that happened this week. It was I I didn't expect that actually. I thought it's interesting to see if she had any push from the leadership of the Labour Party for that, or they were already saying you, you need to resign. You know, if it was her own sort of thing she got a lot of pushback for it for her comments so. yeah uh, understandably i mean i was i was fairly critical of uh jc last time around for really vacillating on this so it'll be interesting to see like what the story behind this is if it comes out yeah the president of the united states is a known racist and nazi sympathizer those words that i just said were streamed onto the side of trump hotel in washington dc this is obviously the fallout from charlottesville uh, the weekend or two. More importantly, we should probably specify. Uh, last episode, we said that he uh, blamed both sides, and then he later came out with something that oh, yeah. much more harshly condemned uh, white nationalism and uh, white supremacy. He then later came out and did a third thing when he was supposed to be talking about an infrastructure thing that clearly bores him a lot because he went on this whole other thing about how actually the people who started the fighting were the quote unquote alt left. Yeah. And it was crazy because when we did the show last time, he'd just, like you say, he'd just done that second yeah. press event where he was basically like, yeah, no, actually called out white supremacists, KKK, neo-Nazis explicitly. Apparently that was written for him and he really didn't like like yeah. saying it. And then he that was, that was two, just a mere two days later, he did another press conference, completely rode back on it, even further than what he was previously saying. And then from there onwards, snowballed. Yeah, just because he got a bee in his bonnet. And it, it's... What's also absurd about it is the idea that the left or the counter-protesters were the ones who instigated the violence. I mean, first of all, like... Equating two sides when one side runs someone over. Yeah, but also... It's just ridiculous. But also, like, no, the, the right started the violence on the first day when they started throwing stuff at the counter-protesters who they'd completely surrounded. And they started the second time when they grabbed a bunch of shields and smashed their way through a line of protesting clergy. 
You know, yeah. they instigated the violence both times. A lot of people are like trying to equivocate between, uh, you know, the defensive actions of Antifa trying to keep their community safe, and the marauding like 500 or so fascists who were demonstrating at the time. And like a, a fascist demonstration is essentially like a declaration of intent to commit genocides or at the very least ethnic cleansing, which I think like that qualifies as either like violence or enough of a threat of violence that responding with defensive violence is fine and ethical and so the idea that they are equivalent at all is ridiculous but he did also say that the fascist demonstration included good people yeah good good people good people that just march with nazis they're, they're, they're not Nazis, but they, they still march with them, so they're just good people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like his, his dad was a good person. Uh, you know, the, he has a lot of experience with good people. If you we could understand. talk more about the makeup of that uh, particular rally anyway, but that, that's something that happened this week. Speaking of Trump in particular, his approval rating has dropped to about 34%, probably the lowest. Some, some polls having it a bit higher. A poll that came out in particular this week uh, was one that reportedly showed that 6 in 10 people who approve of Donald Trump at the moment, say that they will never, ever stop approving of Donald Trump, whatever he does, regardless of the situation. His own words on the campaign, I could go outside onto Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and I wouldn't lose support. Yeah, well, apparently he's lost a huge amount of support. He has, but, but it's, it's this, what this poll points yeah, yeah, out yeah. is there is a there is a core that will yeah, not there move. Yeah, there is a hard core. It's 60% of the current um, support base he has, which, like I say, is about 35 to 40%, sometimes a little bit lower than yeah. that. If you transfer that to the whole population, that's 25% yeah. of the population. So a quarter of Americans are on board with Trump and never getting off the Trump train. Yeah, and another quarter to, you know, 30% will vote for him if it's in their, like, economic interests. They will yeah. vote Republican because the Republicans are better for them on taxes and on capital gains than the Democrats would be. So, uh, I mean, you could infer from that that these people aren't going to shift ever and his approval rating will never go below 20 to 25%. But what it's important to point out with polling, it's happened time and time again, this is what the people are saying at this point in time. So it's saying what they would do. Sometimes when people are confronted with different realities that they never thought would happen, they do end up shifting in some certain way. But then again, maybe they won't. It's, it's, that was a Monmouth University poll anyway this week. Lastly, though, in terms of approval ratings, Macron's approval rating, the president of France, his is plummeting as well. It's dropped faster than any other French president after 100 days, and he's got a lower approval rating than Francois Hollande did after 100 days, someone who is known for being unpopular as a president. Like, he was supposed to be, like, the validating yeah. thing for, like, middle-of-the-road centrist, uh, like, liberal economics and vaguely like vaguely progressive social policy and of course like complete immiseration of labor rights and you know and social services but that that's like that kind of i guess trudeauish obamaish model of like a vaguely photogenic nice like manager the thing, the thing of, is like half the people that voted for him in the second round voted to just not they didn't want to let le pen in oh more than half i mean yeah. In the first round, he got what, 20, yeah, 24% or so. I mean, the communists got 20, Le Pen got 22, and I think... Um, the I conservatives think, got about 20%. Yeah. So it's kind of split quite, you know... You could point. argue he's gained 10. Yeah, you could. More importantly, his approval is shrinking with every week, yeah. because people hate centrism. It's gutless and stands for nothing and usually involves eviscerating labor. He has painted himself as something very new for that country. But uh, I think people might be, a certain contingent might be waking up to realize that he's not representing anything actually new. Yeah. Um, anyway, moving but on. I hope the fucking fascists don't get in. Yeah, I really don't. Jesus Christ. Moving on to our first proper story, which is something that's been happening today. Big Ben chimed for the last time at Westminster recently, uh, aside from special occasions such as Remembrance Day and things like New Year's, it's not going to be chiming again for about four years. Yeah, and this was a this was a fascinating discussion that kind of reveals a lot about the ridiculousness of yeah. like the British idea of itself. It, it, de it definitely does. The reason why it's not going to be chiming, there's big health and safety problems with it, and that maintenance needs to be done quickly, so the people that work on it won't get hurt. So yeah, that, because that's quite it, it might deafen them. Yeah. Because there's a huge fucking bell that they'll be working right next to. Anyway, so as it chimed for the last time today, 
uh, at noon, there was a small gathering of people uh, outside, a vigil, if you will, commemorating the last, or at least, you know, witnessing the last bong for four years. And one certain MP who was there, there was like a handful, maybe a few more that were there, was Stephen Pound, Labour MP for, I think, North Ealing. There's a video uh, that the Huffington Post uh, executive editor, Paul Woe, or Paul Woff, I think maybe I'm getting his wrong, name wrong there, tweeted out of Stephen Pound like visibly crying in the video and putting like a handkerchief to his eyes. This guy's crying over a clock. It is the dumbest shit. I've basically decided that these people are just pagans and they believe that literally there's like a spirit of Britannia that lives inside the bell. Uh, and you know, they're essentially uh, just bell worshippers. <laughs> it, it's the fucking... It's a loud bit of metal, guys. It's not fucking essential to the British identity of itself. Although, like I said, I think it's emblematic of a lot of things. I think it's emblematic to see people, like, irrationally losing their mind over something that will absolutely be better for the thing they supposedly value in the long run but which lessens their ability to evoke some extremely shallow view of well, patriotism. I mean, the thing is, with this video, go watch it. It's, it's on Paul Woe's, or Paul Woff, uh, his Twitter, at Paul Woff. I'm going to go with that. The video is kind of funny because like, he's almost like that Steve Pan is kind of smirking a bit. And there's like a Guardian sketch writer in the background just literally smirking the whole time. Yeah. And you can hear like a few people around him like kind of laughing a bit. And I'm like, is this whole thing a joke? Like, is this... Like, cause he, even the guy crying looks like he's got a bit of a smirk on him. He looks like a bit yeah. of a character, but I know he's not lying. And come with me, I'll tell you why. Take me on a journey. Um, so it turns out this guy, Stephen Pound, is the guy that organized the whole vigil outside. Jesus fucking Christ. I mean, at this point I'm like, please say he did it ironically, like it's a joke. Yeah. He definitely didn't. Asked if joking before today, he said, quote, no, of course I'm not. Of course we're going to be there. A group of like-minded traditionalists. He goes on, quote, We're going to be gathering outside the members' entrance, gazing up at this noble, glorious edifice, listening to the sounds rolling across Westminster, summoning true Democrats to the Palace of Westminster. We'll be stood down there with heads bowed, but hope in our hearts. What the fuck is wrong with these people? (laughs) Uh, Stephen Pound later told Sky News, Brightness has fallen from the air. The sound has gone. Now it sounds like we're sort of anthropomorphizing something or being sentimental or silly, but it's not. News for you, Stephen Pound, it definitely is. Yeah. <laughs> like I say, these people are fucking pagans. Oh, Jesus Christ. One thing that uh, someone else pointed out, the people at the New Statesman, what they pointed out there was that Theresa May uh, would condemn the Big Ben silence, Jesus. but she would kind of not specifically condemn Donald Trump in his defense of the rallying neo Nazis. Yeah. Um, so, but they both pointed out here, and talking about those neo Nazis at Charlottesville, at first, Theresa May said, quote, What the president says is a matter for him. And then she went on to say, quote, I see no equivalence between those who profound fascist views and those who oppose them. Quote, I think it is important for all those in positions of responsibility to condemn far right views wherever we hear them. So she's like condemning uh, far right views and fascists and yeah, yeah. neo Nazis there, but like, don't touch Trump. He's like our big ally, West. You know, don't touch him specifically. We can't ruin that. Yeah, of course. We've got to and get that trade deal through. I like the idea that he's aware of global politics at all. Like, yeah. when they last met, he literally said, like, oh, call me if you're ever in town. <laughs> yes. Like, the Prime Minister of the UK is just going to, like, go, oh, we're, we're holidaying. Why don't, we, why don't we give Donald a ring? That's what uh, she said about uh, President Trump's comments. Yeah. On the Big Ben thing... I'm not even, I don't even know what to call it. It's just ridiculous. Uh, she said, Of course we want to ensure people's safety at work, but it can't be right for Big Ben to be silent for four years. And I hope that the Speaker, as the Chairman of the House of Commons Commission, will look into this urgently so that we can ensure that we can continue to hear Big Ben through those four years. I mean, presumably this is catnip to like her voter base of... 60 year olds who get overly like misty eyed about a country they've ruined every institution of right yeah that was uh, the big ben ridiculousness today of mps visibly crying in front of a, a clock chiming for the last time anyway let's move on what's the next thing we've got coming up what this indeed. is uh the showdown in one corner in the red corner we have stephen hawking in the blue corner we have jeremy hunt let's run on this 
Stephen Hawking recently wrote a column for The Guardian in which he called out Jeremy Hunt's approach to reforming National Health Service and the evidence that he supposedly uses to back uh, the changes that he's pursuing. This piece called The NHS Saved Me, as a scientist, I must help to save it, opens with this. Quote, like many people, I have personal experience with the NHS. In my case, medical care, personal life and scientific life all are intertwined. I have received a large amount of high quality NHS treatment and would not be here today if it were not for the service. He goes on to explain more recently, quote, last year, my personal experience of the NHS and my scientific life came together when I co-signed a letter calling for healthcare policy to be based on peer-reviewed research and proper evidence. The specific issue addressed in the letter was the, quote, weekend effect. Now, what is the weekend effect for those that don't know? This is Jeremy Hunt's claim that significantly more people have been dying at the weekend due to poor hospital care at that time. And his answer is this concept of a seven-day NHS, which isn't really a seven-day NHS. It's just taking the existing resources that are already there, the existing staffing levels, and stretching them across seven days. Oh, making... because, because uh, you know, health workers aren't massively overstretched yeah, enough. Yeah, I mean, they're already overstretched as it is. Let's just, you know, spread that a bit further onto the weekend. You guys are fucking sadists. It's this. almost as if if you did that, it would collapse. And then you could just sell it off to all your friends. Anyway, this is obviously Stephen Hawking. I mean, for those that don't know who Stephen Hawking, give it a little brief rundown, Alex. A massively notable physicist uh, wrote a brief history of the universe, I think. Uh, Famous for being a paraplegic. Uh, Also, very long-term socialist. Uh, Refused a knighthood because he doesn't believe in the monarchy. Uh, Generally cool guy. Uh, They made a kind of mediocre film about him a couple of years ago. Uh, but, like, if you have, like, two hours to spare, that'll bring you up to speed. Okay. So, you know, he's pretty... And obviously, Jeremy Hunt is the health secretary uh, that we're talking about, for those that don't know. Uh, so Hawking mentions in in his piece, he does have sympathies um, to the idea of wanting more weekend services. He'd like that to be a thing. But Hawking, as many others have done in the past, explains and points out that the evidence that Jeremy Hunt is basically picking up and using is cherry-picked. It's not good enough. There's more to be looked at and what he's describing this weekend effect isn't the full picture and that should be taken into account Uh, he explains quote when public figures abuse scientific argument citing some studies but suppressing others to justify policies they want to implement for other reasons it debases scientific culture he doesn't mention it in the article but four of the eight studies cited by the health secretary were not peer-reviewed uh, so that you know, half of the ones he's looking at are not peer-reviewed studies, and 13 papers that contradict everything that Jeremy Hunt's going for are just ignored, and people have pointed them out to him lots and lots of times. Later on in the article, Hawking does describe the situation of healthcare in this country in terms of two different forces with differing interests, and the same can be said for America, same can be said for other Western countries, but particularly the UK and the US. Let's just see what he has to say, because this is uh, some important quotes. On the one hand, there is the force of the multinational corporations, driven by their profit motive. In the US, where they're dominant in the healthcare system, these corporations make enormous profits. Healthcare is not universal, and it is hugely more expensive for the outcomes patients receive than in the UK. We see the balance of power in the UK is with private healthcare companies and the direction of change is towards a US-style insurance system. If that all sounds political, that is because the NHS has always been political. It was set up in the face of political opposition. It is Britain's finest public service and the cornerstone of our society, something that binds us together. People value the NHS and are proud that we treat everyone equally when they are sick. The NHS brings out the best in us. We cannot lose it. So he's laying it out there that, first of all, the end goal for people like Jeremy Hunt and a lot of the Tories is a US-style insurance system. And people like Laura Kunzberg, the BBC political editor, have actually said that, off the record, Tories would love, like, just want to get rid of the NHS and have that US insurance-style system. It's an open secret. Yeah, but on the record, that they know they can never publicly say it. Like, they know they cannot 
do that because they cannot make that goal clear. Yeah, not only would it be atrocious as a policy, but it would reveal to everyone exactly what the Conservatives are and the way that they view the way that a state should be run. Case in point, Paul Nuttall, when he came out with those statements. Yeah, which he, he was rightly completely eviscerated for. So like we said, we all said already that Jeremy Hunt's changes to things like the junior doctor's contract basically boiled down to getting what's already there, the current resource levels, the current staffing levels, and push them onto the weekend, stretch them a bit further. Because God forbid you might tax people more to actually properly fund things. What was the response to this? Of course, Jeremy Hunt, being in this boxing match, had to hit back against one of the most prominent thinkers of our time. Why not? Um, I'm sure he's going to do just fine in that comparison. Let's roll in with these tweets. What did Jeremy Hunt have to say? Number one, first one, he goes, Stephen Hawking is brilliant physicist, but wrong on lack of evidence for weekend effects. 2015 Fremantle study, most comprehensive ever. And whatever entrenched opposition, no responsible health secretary could ignore it if you want NHS to be safest health service in the world as I do. A day later, because that was on August 18th, the next day he tweets some more um, following things like this article. Um, most pernicious falsehood from Stephen Hawking is idea government wants US style insurance system. It is too much to ask him to look at evidence. NHS under Conservatives has seen more money, more docs and more nurses than ever in history. Again, less per person. Exactly. It is in no way rising in, like, in comparison to what needs to be made available to it. Those with private med insurance down 9.4% since 2009. But like you say, the, 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 this is what the Tories always do. And Theresa May has done it so many times out of dispatch box. They're like record numbers of people doing this, record numbers of money going into the NHS. I mean, this is one particular example. The pound is not the value it was in 2009 as it is now. There's differing amounts there. So you can't equate how much was put into the NHS then uh, as like a, just a, a, a raw number as you can now. Yeah, but of course, people don't really know that. And so they want to make it very clear that they think you can. Uh, the Daily Mash came out with a great article, an absolutely brilliant one. <laughs> Hawking discovers new super dense black hole. <laughs> Uh, Professor Stephen Hawking has discovered the densest thing in the known universe. <laughs> and there's, you know, loads of replies to Jeremy Hunt on his own Twitter feed as well. One Martin McKee, who's Professor of European Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Hell yeah. He said he'd been writing on these subjects for, on hospital mortality for like 22 years. Was tweeting back like, yo, look at this link. Boom, boom. <laughs> it's just there in the thread. You can see it. Surely Jeremy Hunt sees that, the amount of stick he gets on Twitter. I mean, I don't think he... I, I imagine there's probably some, like, very nervous aide who just hasn't told him. Yeah. He just goes, what did they think of my proclamation? <laughs> and this kid goes like, oh, they they uh, they love it. You know what they're like. He's the longest serving health secretary. I can't see how much more he can last. Yeah, I mean, it's he's, he's extremely bad. Like, the... The NHS is in a shambles compared to the health it enjoyed even like a decade ago. And it, it's it, it's just shocking to see the way it's been desolated, especially considering how slow the economy has been because government spending like this can drive demand that can help to provide a real push for an economy. But for ideological reasons, the conservatives don't want to do that. The conservatives want to starve public services because the goal of the neoliberal project and the kind of end point for the neoliberal mechanism is the destruction of the public square. It is the end to public services because they could be privatized and so by the logic of these people it should be. It's just it's frustrating to see this just ridiculous shambling idiot kept around despite humiliation after humiliation. It's it's just stunning. Let's get on to the next story, go. Oh, hell yeah. So, uh, Steve Bannon, we've brought him up a couple of times. He is maybe best described as, like, a double chin if you gave it sentience. Um, and he has, after a good long while of being the most controversial person associated with Donald Trump, and that's really saying something... He joined, uh, the, he joined the Trump campaign about a year ago. End of August, start of September. He Just did. Uh, Corey Lewandowski got kicked out. Paul Manafort got kicked out for his ties to various autocratic regimes and essentially the most evil people in the world. And so the Trump campaign brought on uh, polling person and messenger Kellyanne Conway and the head of Breitbart, a far-right news network, 
Steve Bannon. Now, Steve Bannon kind of very quickly became the ideological uh, heavyweight behind Donald Trump. So all the things that Donald Trump was just exclaiming as like grievances had picked up from years of watching Fox News, uh, Bannon kind of fashioned into a package. Yeah, or a, a, a semi-coherent, like something you could mistake for coherent if you squinted uh, ideology that could then be pushed and marketed, which he referred to as economic nationalism. And the 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 actual gist of it was basically keeping as much money in government hands as possible, not to actually help anyone, but basically to use uh, state finance as a weapon of empire on the international stage. Now, Bannon is a weirdo. He's always referred to himself as being inspired by Lenin, uh, but not in any kind of ideological way. Just he likes the idea of being in a vanguard of some kind. He's, he's a genuinely weird dude. And uh, as we mentioned, he's also very far right. His views are essentially fascist. He was considered to be the, you know, the main person to be blamed for Trump's ill-advised lines on the Charlottesville incident, which sped up an exit that had actually been scheduled for quite some time, it turns out. Uh, he was supposed to be going uh, because he was attempting to cause this uh, grassroots outrage against General H.R. McMaster, the head of the uh, National, of security. National Security Council. Yeah, obviously, Stephen Bannon was fired from National Security and he's... Yeah. He's and a- also, he doesn't like military guys because, weirdly, military guys tend to be relatively dovish compared to, like, neocon chicken hawks who work for, like, obscene think tanks with names like, you know, the Middle East Peace Institute. Um... You know, and so he never liked McMaster, and so he's, you know, he's been leaking a lot of stuff saying that he was trying to get, uh, like, uh, you know, American soldiers to worship the Quran and stuff like that, which you can get away with in America because their libel laws are completely fucking insane. And there's been a lot of stuff can- appearing in that far-right news website, Breitbart, that he used to edit, that was clearly being leaked by him. Oh, yeah. Stuff attacking I mean- Jerry Kushner, Donald Trump's son-in-law... Stuff attacking H.R. McMaster. Gary Cohn. Yeah. And there was, especially with uh, Kushner and Cohen, there was a very, very specific globalist uh, slant to the criticism, which was, like, nakedly anti-Semitic. It was, you know, very, like, right out of, like, the traditional far-right fascist playbook. Uh, Because that's what Breitbart is, basically. But yes, uh, he was considered responsible for his boss's tacit apologia for fascists, kind of emboldening him to take that stance and just regurgitate it whenever he was, you know, trying to talk about infrastructure. But um, uh, it's also worth noting that he actually wasn't doing anything towards the end. He was being phased out. Uh, he was becoming increasingly frustrated. He'd made nothing but enemies the entire time. Famously. Uh, he was absolutely hated by Jared and Ivanka, uh, who have always been fairly ineffectual in actually directing uh, policy, but they managed to put up enough resistance that, you know, Steve Bannon made real enemies of them, and it, it's kind of fascinating to see this deeply disagreeable person who Trump specifically really likes and no one else does, make it this far. I mean, he did stick around for a year, which is more than most staff people involved with Trump have managed because he's completely dysfunctional. But it's worth mentioning that this probably isn't the end of their relationship. Shortly before leaving, Bannon and Trump met privately with the Mercer family, uh, an ultra-conservative billionaire hedge fund dynasty who have been the financing behind a lot of far-right stuff in America, uh, mostly for the usual ultra-conservative reasons. Uh, They have said that uh, they don't believe climate change is happening, and that if it is happening, it's probably for the best. Uh, They've said that nuclear war is fine, because if you look in Japan, there are parts of the uh, there are parts of Japan which have been hit by nuclear weapons, uh, which were actually even better than they were before. Which is a complete lie. People were dying of radiation poisoning for like 50 years afterwards, like just coughing up blood and dying painfully. Um, and they have also said that the only people uh, in America who are subject to racism are, of course, white people. 
so they're those kinds of people, but they also have billions of dollars. Uh, they funded the Trump campaign. They bankrolled Breitbart to the point where even though the Sleeping Giants activist group has been causing their advertisers to drop like flies, they're down to like 26 uh, advertisers. Uh, they're still probably going to be able to continue on just because they're going to become another slush fund for like billionaire dark money, the same as every other conservative outlet. Uh, where it's just a, essentially a charity case for some like obscene like pockmarked multi-billionaire and so yeah they funded trump's campaign they bankrolled breitbart and they also run the shadowy cambridge analytics an extremely sinister data operation uh which there's been a load of really good articles written about on the the guardian that will make you genuinely fear for democracy and you know kind of render anything other than like a complete radical shift in the way we do politics on a global scale completely irrelevant so donald trump and stephen bannon had that meeting with the mercers they did in and a manner that seems a lot like coordinating yeah uh, and where do you see that going what do you think will happen in terms of where bannon is then going to turn from now well i mean of- it, it's fairly obvious bannon has already returned immediately back to breitbart almost as though he never actually left a position yeah. of running the co- company and was in fact just feeding it things as a an extension of the trump administration yeah uh, I, which is strange because that can't be true right uh but <laughs> it, it just might be so yeah he's leapt right back in and he's by all by all accounts suggested that he's spoiling for a fight he actually rang up the uh weekly standard for an interview rather than going through breitbart directly because the weekly standard is like moderately respectable according yeah. to right-wing people although it's still one of these cases where it's kept alive entirely by the philanthropy or rather misanthropy of just a collection of shadowy billionaires who want to promote right-wing ideology. Um, and he has specifically said, uh, I feel jacked up. Now I'm free. I've got my hands back on my weapons. Someone said it's Bannon the Barbarian. I'm definitely going to crush the opposition. There's no doubt. I built a fucking machine at Breitbart. And now I'm go- Now I'm about to go back knowing what I know. I'm about to rev that engine up and rev it up we will do i can fight better on the outside i can't fight too many democrats on the inside like i can outside so that that's a that's a weird line he's been pushing for a while now the idea that the democratic party is somehow massively influential on the current trump administration uh, which you know he suggested a couple of times that everyone else in that administration is too liberal for him which is kind of fascinating considering it features people such as Betsy DeVos, the like insane evangelical school privatization mogul and sister to Eric Prince, the dark king of like global mercenaries and like this obscene like murderous Christian supremacist. So, you know, the fact that that's kind of something that really stands out for him is kind of shocking. Uh, but he's also declared that he'll be going to war with those so-called liberal elements of the Trump administration. Like, trying like to the make people sure... we've mentioned, HR McMaster. Yeah. Trying to make sure that what he sees as the true manifestation, Trumpism, which he largely codified, comes to fruition. Now, he's also suggested that he doesn't have a huge amount of faith in this. He's basically said the Trump presidency yes. that we fought for and won is over. And from here on out, it's probably going to fail. Yes, he's suggested certainly that his idea of quote-unquote economic nationalism has never caught purchase. It, it They just immediately went to the usual Republican finance people for their, uh, you know, for their economic policy, um, which kind of flew in the minds of this idea he had for this, like, huge state-controlled apparatus of wealth that would be used on the global scale. And also he kind of would always allude to, like, vaguely redistributive policies, Uh, but basically like whites only redistributive policies Um, so it's hard to really know what to make of that but it it, he still maintains a conviction that a racist uh, like a racist social policy and a you know relatively generous economic policy would have been undefeatable and it probably would have been but it would have also been massively incoherent and not really in possession of any real power base because obviously the people who can the people who have racial uh, control in America and also here in the UK also have the economic interests which would be kind of taken down and you know come on un- uh, come under assault 
under any kind of more redistributive politics. And this is why you, there's always this idea that, like, the socially liberal, economically conservative thing is incoherent, uh, or, or is... I mean, this would have been the other thing, actually. It would have been uh, socially conservative, economically liberal, which is so unpopular that it's basically just a couple of weird Catholic reactionaries and Dennis Duffy from 30 Rock. <laughs> like, those are those are the only people who believe in that. But um, the idea that, like, economic hierarchy and racial hierarchy are things that can be dealt with asymmetrically through different uh through different po uh, policy planks is just absurd and the fact that it completely failed to find purchase in the most receptive possible uh you know presidency for that kind of suggests how incoherent it is and how it completely fails to slot into any actual understanding of the way power is arranged within society but yeah, he's kind of suggested that he's going to be fighting from the outside, supposedly in concert with Trump, who I suspect probably forgot about this literally five minutes after he agreed to it. Yeah. Uh, but the idea that they would be trying to wage political war against elements of his own administration. And so that's going to be really fascinating to watch as this, like, juddering, obviously DT-ridden, like stubbly old red-faced weirdo who just always looks like he's dying you know may actually end up being the biggest enemy of some of the most powerful members of the american administration so it's, it's worth look forward to that really quickly it's worth having a chat about that american prospect interview a it is this was a weird thing as has become tradition for trump uh, administration officials. He did have an insane rant with a liberal journalist over the, the, the phone. The same thing happened with before. Scaramucci, didn't he? It and did. Scaramucci phoned this guy up and was ranting to him and didn't realise that it was not off the record. Didn't say yeah. that. So the, the guy didn't realise or just assumed this guy would do him a solid. Yeah. So the difference with Bannon, I think, is when Bannon Bannon basically phoned up this kind of very liberal and progressive site, uh, American Prospect. Um, and had a similar sort of thing where he just kind of ranted to the reporter. Yeah, but it but, was much friendlier. It was not him yelling at him the yeah. way it was with Scaramucci. And, but also, Bannon knows about the media. So this whole... A lot of people were saying, oh, he did this uh, interview with American Prospect. And this is probably going to be why he leaves. Like, this is why he's getting fired. And it, it, I think that's completely the wrong take. Yeah, I mean, apparently, uh, apparently General Kelly, the actual chief of staff, was actually completely outraged at yeah. this. Uh, apparently, General Kelly just couldn't believe it, and it was one of the main things that did finally kick him out of the door, but it's what very clear that this was of his doing. What I think it was is, as people thought, uh, as soon as people saw this, people were like, oh, Bannon's on the way out. And I think Bannon was on the way out, and then he did this as a way to flex his muscles to show the rest of the administration yeah. he's got these media ties. He can really yeah. punch big. Or at the very least, he can On control the, the media in a way that they can't. Like he can like he can go to a liberal journalist and can, you know, get him to repeat his own party line in a way that no one else really can do. Like famously, Trump administration communications has been rocky. Uh, <laughs> That is an understatement. Yeah, I, I think we're going to stick with understatement there. Uh, it's been they've had a difficult time of things, and so just reminding people of how much power he has in that sphere may well be a power move. Just to let people know about that interview that we're talking about, he basically phoned up a reporter from the American Prospect, spoke uh, about how he has he, he basically undermined what Donald Trump was saying in regards to a military option in North Korea. Well, he he spoke complete sense. He said there's no way to deal with this yeah. where seal which is but it was regardless of whether he spoke sense or not what the thing was that he spoke different to what trump was saying yes and therefore undermined his ego which is more important than whatever he said about north korea to trump yeah trump, that's the kind of tragedy of all this the number one thing that will get you fired from the trump administration is hurting trump's ego and you know undermining his power um it, that's it's the same with the white supremacist stuff like uh that's not the reason that uh, he got fired it's because he pissed off trump he was trying and he also said in that interview that he was going to go around and get people fired from the white house and he was going to be in control whereas nobody does that trump does that yeah it's he also i this is why i kind of think he was playing uh exactly. this reporter it's he basically made the in, most of the interview 
was basically about him explaining the ending of the first season of House of Cards, where he just explains that actually the politics of the future is trade war with China, and that one of them is going to be the global hegemon, or the other is, and how they need to be engaging with China, no one wants to engage with China, these globalists and these military people don't want to engage in China, and you, you understand China, I love your writing, you you really understand the threat that China poses. And just this kind of insane, like, just bizarre take on hit, like, the idea that we should have, like, a, a destroying China-centric foreign policy. Um, which, like I say, is basically the end plot of uh, House of Cards, and so I feel like he probably planted that in there just so that the p- kind of people in DC who all watch House of Cards because it's how they wish they were, where they're actually way more like Veep... <laughs> Um, you know, they go, oh, oh he, he sounds sounds exactly like Raymond Tusk. We should definitely pay attention to him. But that, that interview is just kind of bizarre and very revealing of, like, how gone he already was at that point, even before the... Um... I must say as well, he on the way out, he's been like, yeah, I resigned two weeks ago. Fuck you guys. Yeah, which <laughs> is complete bullshit. That's got to be complete bullshit. I mean, actually, no. By all accounts, Kelly had given him a countdown. He had, yeah, that's he had what I mean. no work on his desk. That's what I mean, like... Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he was he was fired by Kelly. He was he was let go. It's he was. The point the point why I'm making is it's not bullshit that uh, it, it was in motion two yeah, weeks yeah, yeah. ago. It was bullshit the fact that it was all his own decision. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if he was allowed to resign, but there's no way that this was his choice. He wants to be near a center but of they, power. They always do this. The Trump administration, they're like, yeah, well, we are letting him go. We we've let him resign. Uh, we've agreed that he's going to resign. <laughs> you fired him, basically. Yeah, it's it's the most transparent stuff. Yeah. So, well, obviously, we'll follow that more. And it's been interesting to see what uh, Bannon does with it. Now that he is a masterless Ronin uh, mm. wandering the wilderness, it's going to be interesting to see what strange and wonderful new adventures our good friend Stephen Bannon comes up with next. Next up, we're going to go from one staffer that's recently quit somewhere to another across the Atlantic. And this Hell is actually... Yeah. Uh, James Chapman, who is the former chief of staff to David Davis, the Brexit secretary as at the Department for Exiting the EU. Like we said earlier in the show, he is uh, the chief negotiator on our side, he's, on the UK side for he's, Brexit. He's the reasonable moderate, isn't he? The, yeah. one, the one with gravitas who... He's a big Eurosceptic, so you'd imagine that he'd be in place negotiating. Let's hear uh, what this story is all about. So James Chapman, the former chief of staff to him, and a male journalist as well, uh, tweeted a a number of tweets this past week. um, Big allegations, uh, talking about stuff to do with David Davis that people weren't aware of. The inner secrets of what David Davis is actually like. And we can pick these apart. Some of it you might think is a bit kind of uh, Lord Ashcroft, Piggate, a bit. You know, a bit dubious, but... It's all really, really interesting. Um, let's go with the first one. Uh, someone should ask uh, David Davis about a time he told horrified Slovakian Prime Minister, quote, if you think we're going to pay so you can sell us your cars, forget it. Got another one here. This is probably the, one of the most interesting ones. David Davis, DD for short. DD was also relaxed about Andrew Neil as they drink lots together regularly and his producer, Robbie Gibb, now the Downing Street communications director, is a deranged Brexiteer now at number 10. Yeah, I mean, we've we've spoken fairly extensively in the past, in previous episodes, yeah. about the fairly deep ties that the BBC's highest up political commentators have to the Conservative Party. And what bullshit is, is that it's supposedly this great left-wing or- organisation with this huge left bias, when in fact it's actually run by a bunch of screaming Conservative partisans. Yeah, I, I mean, it's people that are... And maybe even not in partisan, but fine with criticising the Conservatives, but criticising uh, anything that's vaguely left even more. So like, yeah, we're criticising both. Look, look at us yeah. criticise Theresa May when she's re- so obviously being bad enough that we have to. Yeah, but so much dirtier. Like, we, we couldn't get away with not... Uh, criticizing Theresa May in this circumstance, so I guess we have to. Yeah. Um, but ben, never giving praise to someone who uh, isn't of the kind of you know liberal centre or yeah, you know centre right or you know you have like Laura Kunisberg bringing up the same discredited smear against Jeremy Corbyn time and time again, despite being like formally disciplined about it. I would say worse than uh, those people, uh, probably the worst offender at 
at the BBC is someone that, that's revealed in the next tweet from James Chapman. Dee Dee would never prepare for BBC Radio 4 as he knew Humphreys, John Humphreys, presenter of the Today programme, flagship Radio 4 programme, he knew Humphreys would do Brexit chums acts and then hex her and interrupt Labour spokespeople. Bye bye, John. That's some uh, that's some shade that he's throwing on there. Yeah. Uh, and is, I mean, we all know it. Like, that's what you yeah. hear when you listen to this show. I won't go on. BBC Radio 4 again until they replace DD's Brexiteer chum Humphreys with the university respected Caroline Quinn. I don't know Caroline Quinn as well. He also talks about uh, working a three-day week, David Davis. Wish I could say the same for David Davis. He's been working three-day a week since day one. Bye-bye, Conkip. One of the funniest parts of this and the most piggate part of it is apparently David Davis can't make his own ham sandwiches or something without butter. Hell yeah. James Chapman tweets, he can't even make plain ham sandwiches, no butter. An unfortunate woman in his private office has to bring one to him every day. Imagine, aside from anything else, imagine being that fucking unadventurous with your sandwich choices. But I think, like, not being able to make a fucking ham sandwich is exactly the kind of thing you would expect from our just ridiculous aristocratic class, where they just are pampered on hand and foot because they're special for some reason, because they're born with huge amounts of money. Of course, this is the guy as well who turned up to, uh, well, the photo shows that he turned up without any papers uh, for the negotiations with um, Mikael Barnier. You know, they could be under the desk. I don't know. I feel like giving them the benefit of doubt on that because it could just be an unfortunate photograph. But it does look really emblematic of his approach to negotiating Brexit with the EU. The tweets get uh, briefer as well. Uh, still got Farage on speed dial, DD? Question mark. Um, Which I mean, yeah, that, that sounds about right, right? Yeah. Again, like once you look into the actual like policy and once you get away from what Apparent- things are supposed to be and actually observe the way politics has been in this country and the way the media has been in this country. None of this is that surprising. Yeah. But- uh, apparently he ordered civil servants who were appalled to program it into his his, his official phone. <laughs> Nigel Farage's phone on speed dial. That, I, I kind of find that hard to believe like i don't know maybe that's just me being optimistic but yeah you'd kind of hope that he would have a sense to be like a bit more surreptitious than that (laughs) this one's great (laughs) oh someone should ask dd about the time he called Mikel barnier by mistake thinking he was talking to a far-right friend (laughs) (laughs) oh my god amazing um and he apparently has six teas in his sugar which is jesus how does he have any teeth left i don't know um, last thing we're going to talk about today is this thing in the Times, this advert that they've adopted. This the, was extremely The new mascot weird. for the Times is Jeremy Corbyn. What is this? Okay, so we're talking about an advert for their student subscription, where for just £20 a year and with a whole bunch of other benefits, uh, you, a student can get subscribed to the Times. And they advertise it, with a, they advertised it around the time of the A-level results. Uh, with a big picture of Jeremy Corbyn and looking the caption. Looking stern, looking stern. Looking stern, but I think quite commanding. Yeah. And saying, don't let two E's at A-level hold you back. Now, what's weird about this is no one can quite figure out what it's trying to yeah, say. no one can work out, is it sarcastic? Is it serious? Is it complimentative yeah. to Jeremy Corbyn? Is it not? Is it a dig at him? Because I mean, the Times is obviously a conservative paper. And I've seen people from the Times going like, oh, me out, this is quite a burn. And it's like, to me, this looks like, oh yeah, this guy underachieved, but then he got engaged with politics as one might by getting a subscription to the Times <laughs> and then went on to achieve great things. And that that's a, that's a and they're trying to appeal to students who famously are a demographic that hugely yeah, like that's the thing, Jeremy like, Corbyn. It is like the Rorschach test of UK politics right now, this advert, looking at it, because some people have reacted, like you say, maybe more conservatives, I don't know, yeah. have seen it and gone, ha, Jeremy Corbyn's a dumbass, and he got yeah. two E's at A level. There, you know, whatever. He's held back. Whatever. Yeah. Sarkat, don't let them hold you back. Whatever. He's basically a picture of someone being held back, or you know, whatever. Yeah. Again, and then, which is absurd because he's a prime minister in waiting. Yeah. And others look at it. I mean, probably you and me look at it and go, yeah, he's not being held back. He's he's done really well, even though he's got two E's at A level. That's like quite impressive. Yeah. 
Or maybe it's not even that. Maybe we're overthinking it. Maybe they're just going, oh, what do the kids like? The kids like Jeremy Corbyn. We'll sell them our thing using Jeremy Corbyn because <laughs> yeah. that might work. But even then, you have to assume, well, this is the times. So some people who are very, like, interested enough in politics to read more than one paper a day, like me and my weird friends in sixth form, uh, where we would, like, that that's just how we would spend our time. Like, for a, a lot of people, like, young people read The Guardian or young people get their news online. And the only people who then, are, the only people in this demographic who will get their news from The Times are, like, the most twistedly weird, inbred aristocratic, like, young conservatives that this country has to offer. The ones that all basically look like Gringotts goblins. Like, just these... <laughs> Just fundamentally weird, misshapen young people. Yeah, but who like the kind of people who go, "Ha, yes, he is an idiot." Probably public school, the prick. You know, like that's the thing. Like, I think, I think that's where the times were coming on this, but inadvertently, they've also managed to appeal to more progressive younger voters I'm actually without not, trying I'm not sure progressive voters will find this appealing I think that, like us they'll just find it confusing they'll, they'll see through it and they'll see the the mirror side of it because I, I didn't for I took me a while at first and I was like why are people tweeting this and saying you know like oh sick burn and I was like I mean, it's not holding him back. Like that's that's, yeah. a, that's encouraging. Yeah, like the narrative of the thing is that and the well, way they, no, they, no, they yeah, no matter how you've done, if you get engaged with politics, you might end up still coming out ahead. And the fact that they've adopted yeah. his own rhetoric as well, because they in the campaign, the general election campaign, when he launched it, he was using these people are being held back, these people are being held back, giving examples. Don't let the Tories, the Conservatives, hold you back. Yeah, on a certain level. It kind of relies, I think, on the assumption that Jeremy Corbyn is not massively successful, hasn't completely changed the landscape of British politics, hasn't defied the understanding of every single establishment commentator and politician, including everyone who works for this shitty paper. <laughs> like it's always it's gonna be interesting, like if in the future, if Jeremy Corbyn was becomes Prime Minister, um like looking at this sort of thing years later. Yeah. Like I mean, much like we do with all the kind of establishment com commentary of like just a couple years ago or just last year. Yeah. Or just the start of this year. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I can't I can't wrap my head around that one. It is genuinely inscrutable. So definitely try and find it on Twitter or online and, you know, just see if you can figure out what the hell these people are getting at. Cool. We are finishing up now. Last thing on Trump and last thing I'm going to quickly mention is... Uh, there's the big total eclipse that's, that flew over America today. People seeing the total eclipse of the sun, the moon passing in front of the sun. Uh, just Someone's just sent me some footage of uh, Trump staring straight <laughs> up at the sky into the sun. Like, you don't ever look at the sun. Like, all these people, all these people saying, all these people saying, can we stare at the sun when there's an eclipse? Like, is that, like, is that safe? No. no, of course you can't. Yeah. And of course, Donald Trump is the one literally... Like, like squinting up at the sun, bearing down on his orange face, burning, Jesus. burning the fake tan from his cheeks. Jesus fucking Christ! His retinas are going to be as orange as the fucking rest of him. Yeah. <laughs> we have a president who fucking is blinding himself. It's insane. Anyway, we are going to leave. We'll be back again next week. We've got a new Twitter as well. That's at Off the Fence Talk. If you want to connect with us on there, do so. So thanks for listening.